You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. 3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boomerang people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners and custodians of this land upon which we live and work. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who may be in our audience or listening to this broadcast. We acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations people in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement and that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. CCR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis, and current ass. affairs. Monday to Friday, 7 a.m. to late 30 a.m. Good morning, listeners. How are we feeling this morning? Oh, very good, morning. good. Thanks, Claudia. How are you? Good morning. Oh, not too bad. I'm I'm pretty happy at the moment. We had a, a bad week with technology in our house and, um, uh, yeah, I was tearing my hair out a bit, but we've now got things going again and, um, yeah, makes a big difference. So very happy to be connected and um, speaking with you all. Yeah, I'm sure you weren't the only one out there battling with technology in lockdown. Yeah, yeah someone think... sent me a, um, a, a video of a working at home set up with somebody trying to fix their chair like a uh, an office chair where there were pedals and different bits and every time they sat on it it collapsed and they fixed <laughs> it again and it collapsed again anyway in the end they um threw it against the wall and the whole thing smashed and the the office was destroyed and i think it was a bit of a metaphor for the struggles we might be having with technology <laughs> and trying to fix everything ourselves and yeah, be at home, so I could relate to that one. So we've got uh, Patty, Ella and myself here today, and uh, we're really excited. We've got a, a, a full show today. I'm going to be talking to Beth Radulski. She's um, a PhD candidate and a researcher of neuroactivism at La Trobe University in Melbourne. And she's talking to me um, during Autism Month about the misconceptions of autism and um, also about her lived experience as an autistic person. So that's a, a fascinating inter interview and uh, she's a real ambassador and a half uh, for autism. So excited to uh, play that one today. Patty, what have you got up for us? I think towards the end of the show, I'm going to speak to Holly Hammond, who's the uh, managing librarian librarian of the commons library which is a online uh library and it's really aimed towards activists and it's really useful uh particularly in the time of COVID-19 because a lot of them are digital uh digital guides to how, how you can do activism without getting in a crowd of 10,000 people and chanting which is like being taken away from us at the moment that really powerful people power that we normally have we've got to find ways to do that online through through uh, physical distancing. Absolutely. 
And uh, what what about you, Ella? What are you what what are you talking about this week? Yeah, and this week I'm speaking with Iran from the Tamil Refugee Council, um, and he's giving me an update on the court proceedings for the Billawila family of four, um, who are currently being held by immigration on Christmas Island and have been fighting for their right to stay in Australia. Um, so yeah, this is a story I think a lot of our listeners would be familiar with, and we've covered it on Monday Brecky before. Um, so Priya and Nardis were both refugees from Sri Lanka. Um, they came here separately, fleeing persecution, um, and settled in a Queensland town of Billawila, had two children. Um, before they were taken by immigration um, overnight, they were given 10 minutes to collect their things and come to Melbourne. Um, and they've since been put on Christmas Island. Um, federal government actually spent $27 million reopening Christmas Island uh, for the sole purpose of housing this family. Um, and they've been engaged in a really long court proceeding um, to try and come back to Australia. Um, so, yeah, they had a week, uh, the first win they've had in a while in court last week. Um, so the court found they weren't given procedural fairness. Um, and yes, or on Friday, sorry, um, the court was meeting again um, to decide what that would mean. So I'm going to be chatting to Iran and finding out how that went. It never ceases to me, amaze me how like cruel and expensive and just like foolish our asylum seeker policies and the people who sort of are in charge in that area seem to be. It's just opening Christmas Island for $27 million to house a family just seems so bizarre. It just, yeah, beggars belief. And yeah, at any stage, Peter Dunn could stop this with a stroke of a pen. Um, but yeah. Um, still going. And yeah, I think this is a story that got a lot of attention at the time, but yeah, it's important to stay on top of because there's so many other stories happening at the moment. Um, but Absolutely. yeah, this one's still going. Absolutely. So shall we kick the show off? Pull out the people, 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 pull out
That was MIA with Pull Up the People. Now we're going to an interview I did with Iran from the Tamil Refugee Council, who spoke to me on Saturday about the latest developments for the Bilawila family of four, Priya, Nardis, Kapika and Tanika, who have been fighting for their right to remain in Australia. On Friday the 17th of April, the family had their first win in what has been a long court proceeding. The court found that their youngest daughter, Kapika, had been denied procedural fairness in the decision on whether to process her visa claim in 2019. Their lawyers had until this most recent Friday, the 24th of April, to come up with an agreement with the government's lawyers on what the next legal move is. So I spoke with Iran to discuss the outcome of Friday's hearing, and I started by asking him to tell me a little about the family's struggle thus far. Firstly, you know, this family has been in detention for over two years now. Um, it's been, you know, they have gone through many different legal challenges uh, to have, uh, you know, to, to stay in Australia. Um, every legal challenge looked into judicial errors. Uh, it never looked into their case. Uh, they, res- you know, they had one opportunity to tell their story. If they missed out anything, um, that's the end of it. Um, you know, the courts don't uh, look at that. Courts don't look at the current situation in Sri Lanka. Um, when... Piriya and Nades were taken uh, from MITRE detention centre for deportation back in August last year. Uh, They, uh, you know, their legal team uh, challenged uh, the deportation on the basis that Tarunika uh, was not allowed to put in a proper application for protection visa. Tarunika is the youngest daughter she was born, she's only uh, two years old, uh, three years old almost, and um, in most of her time she has spent in detention. Um, she was born after Piria's uh, protection claim was assessed, which meant that her name was not included in any of the protection claims. Uh, so we used that as, a, as an opportunity to say that Tarunika's protection claim was never properly assessed um, and the matter was heard by the courts and uh, uh, the, in, the, in the courts on Friday found that um, uh, she wasn't afforded uh, procedural fairness uh, when the minister uh, assessed um, her claim. So Friday's court case was based on this one particular claim for their youngest daughter? There were there were two claims, you know. Like I said, I am not part of the the legal team, um, and it's it's quite difficult to understand uh, the the legal language. Uh, but there were two uh, there were two claims, and, and and one was dismissed by the the judge, uh, which is basically Tarunika uh, uh, 
you know, Tarunika was automatically uh, qualified to uh, have her asylum claim um, assessed. Um, you know, when in the case of refugees coming by board, um, minister has to lift the bar in order for refugees to apply for protection claim. Um, and, 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 and our legal team's argument was around um, that Tarunika qualified for the bar to be lifted automatically, uh, and that was dismissed. Uh, but then uh, the second point, that she wasn't afforded uh, procedural fairness, that's where we won, which is a significant victory. Um, you know, the government uh, has basically detained Tarunika in detention illegally um, without ever properly assessing uh, her uh, her protection claim. And they've okay. been saying all this time that this family has exhausted all the legal avenues. That's not the case. So they found about a week ago that she hadn't been afforded procedural fairness. Is that right? And yesterday was deciding what that would mean? Yeah, so last, uh, when I say last Friday, two Fridays ago, uh, she uh, wasn't uh, afforded, uh, you know, the, the courts found that she wasn't afforded procedural fairness. And then uh, the court uh, judge said, I'm going to let the legal team uh, come to an agreement on the orders uh, within seven days. If there was no agreement within seven days, um, the, uh, you know, the judge will give the, the legal teams to make further submissions uh, uh, in, in the next fortnight. So we got another two weeks uh, f to make submissions um, and then the judge will make an order. Um, it's, uh, you know, the legal, our legal team is likely to see some sort of win. We don't know exactly what that win looks like. It's not going to lead to uh, Piria and her family being released into the community in the short term. Um, it's it's going to require further legal challenges, more support from people. We need to put pressure on this government to let this family go back to Bilawila. They have spent unnecessarily millions of dollars to torture this family. Uh, and, um, you know, their current detention on Christmas Island, It's they're, they're the only people on Christmas Island. And, um, millions of dollars are being put into uh, keeping this family on Christmas Island to send, I don't know what sort of message uh, to, to anybody who's, um, who's looking at this. Um, it's cruel. Uh, it's, it's so wrong. People should be outraged uh, by the amount of money we're, we're spending at a time when uh, we need all the resources to fight um, a health crisis and an economic crisis. Yeah, absolutely. The amount of money they've spent alone just beggars belief. Um, and I realise it's really difficult to say at this stage, do, do we have an idea of um, what outcome to expect or at least a sort of range of possibilities? Oh, look, I, I don't want to speculate on, uh, you know, what outcome uh, it's likely to be. Um, we just have to wait and see. But it's, you know, things like covering legal costs um, you know, and maybe properly assessing Taronika's claim um, could be on the cards, but it's not going to lead to the family being released into the community. 
And as you said so far, it's all been about legal technicalities and the family really haven't been given much of an opportunity to tell their story. Are they likely to get an opportunity? Throughout the last 26 months, the minister uh, had uh, an opportunity to, um, you know, to hear their case properly, right? Um, there were many ministerial requests, uh, which is basically minister can say, uh, look, um, I see that you have a genuine case or at least, uh, you know, you, you're making uh, new claims and, you know, there is uh, uh, the, the situation in Sri Lanka has also changed as well. Um, I'm going to uh, call for a review of your case. The minister could have done that any time in the last 26 months. He refused to. He uh, wanted uh, the, the family to uh, go through the, the legal avenues and uh, the legal avenues were never going to look, at, look into their case. Um, you know, over the last 26 months, if you look at the country situation in Sri Lanka, uh, there was um, the, you know, the Sri Sena government became more and more authoritarian. Uh, and then we had the Easter bomb attacks. Um, and, um, and in November last year, new president was sworn in, Gotabaya Rajabaksha, the man who led uh, the war in 2009 and uh, the man who, um, you know, normalized killings in Sri Lanka, you know, under, under his watch, uh, scores of journalists went missing, uh, over 100,000 Tamils were murdered. He is the president of Sri Lanka and his president, um, Mahindra Rajapaksha, is the prime minister of Sri Lanka. These two men are in power. They have promoted war criminals to key positions. And uh, they, you know, the Tamil community in North and East are basically living in an open prison, you know, in, in fear of the military. Uh, for every five Tamil, there is an army member present in the North and East of Sri Lanka. So, you know, the situation over the last 26 months has significantly changed. And um, that itself is enough uh, to you know, review uh, Piriyan Nadez's case. Uh, but obviously, um, you know, Peter Dutton is not interested in uh, giving protection visas to Tamils. We know that with, with all the statistics, um, they are determined to deport Tamils back to Sri Lanka and, um, and, and not affording a, a fair process for this family is in line with how they've been treating everyone else. And like you've said, there's so much uncertainty in the case still. Um, do we know how the family are coping with all this uncertainty? Kiria is a strong Tamil woman. Um, you know, Tamil struggle has seen so many brave Tamil women, but it's, it's very rare to find a common Tamil woman, you know, who are as strong as um, Kiria. She is... It's a very strong woman, and uh, and that's part of the reason why uh, they have maintained uh, their sanity, their strength uh, in detention over the last twenty six months. You know, with two children, um, you know, being in detention is like hell. You know, and uh, and and your health deteriorates um, uh, over this period. But Piria has maintained her strength. 
um, and um, and she's really determined to fight the government and 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 fight uh, her deportation. She wanted to. She wanted the whole family to be in Bolivia, not in Sri Lanka. She fled Sri Lanka after witnessing her fiance being burnt alive by the Sri Lankan army together with five other men, and that memory is in her head all the time, you know, and uh, uh, nobody can expect her to go back to uh, Sri Lanka. And then Nadez fled under dangerous circumstances as well. Uh, so, you know, the family is determined to fight this, even if it means that waiting for the next um, government to come in. Um, they, uh, they're just hoping that they will you know, somewhere along the line, they will see a win which will lead them to returning to Villa Villa. Yeah, yeah, I was really struck by a quote I read from Priya um, when asked how she was coping with it. And she said, for her, she's lived through a war zone, so she can cope with it, but it's her children she worries about. Do we know much about the conditions they're living in in Christmas Island? The conditions a bit better than how it was when they were first uh, taken to Christmas Island, but they're still living in a, in a room that is basically a container. Uh, and, um, you know, they still have uh, all sorts of uh, issues uh, with, uh, you know, access to uh, decent toilets, uh, decent uh, facilities, you know. Um, that's still an issue. Uh, but Piria is not overly concerned about that. Uh, she is concerned by the fact that the children are in detention and uh, and they want to get back to Bilovila and and build a normal life. Uh, that's that's what they're focused on. Uh, but the conditions are bad, but it's it's nothing like fleeing the war zone. Uh, so they they're able to uh, cope with it. And has coronavirus had an impact on the family at all? The the family has been constantly uh, concerned about uh, the way the guards were behaving, uh, uh, or the way the the government has handled uh, the whole thing. Obviously, uh, initially, when the the Chinese uh, um, uh, you know residents who were returning from China were taken to Christmas Island. Uh, they were kept in another detention center, which was close by. Uh, so they were really uh, concerned about catching the virus. Um, they are uh, they they are in contact with uh, you know so many different people: the guards, uh, border force officers, uh, cleaners, food delivery people, and uh, and so you know all these people. Uh, you don't know, you know where they've been and, and all that and, 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 and you know the family feared that they had a high chance of catching the virus um, I you know the the guards have been promising them that they haven't you know they haven't uh, uh, moved uh, away from Christmas Island like they've been living on Christmas Island um, uh, and so you know Piria uh, thinks that they're a bit okay but I've been hearing the, that the guards have been, you know, flying in and out of um, mainland Australia. Um, so, you know, it's it's dangerous. Um, the family is very concerned about catching the virus, um, 
them being in detention is not going to help them if there is a mass spread. Um, uh, yeah, we just hope that they get released into the community. Yeah, absolutely. It's not a humane condition for anyone to live in. And the family have received a huge amount of support from their local community in Bilawila, as you said, where they were much loved and been sorely missed, um, and also at a national level. How can people listening at home show their support? Over 300,000 people have uh, supported uh, this family through the, the change.org uh, petition. Uh, we encourage people to sign that petition. Uh, people can take uh, selfie actions uh, in hashtag home to below. People can also ring uh, the, the government ministers, the immigration minister's office, acting immigration minister Alan Touch or Peter Dunn's office and, and put pressure on them to let this family out. Um, also on 2nd of May, uh, Tamil Refugee Council is organizing a Zoom rally. Um, take part in that and show your support to this family. That was Iran from the Tamil Refugee Council talking to me about the Tamil family of four who are being detained on Christmas Island and are struggling to return to their home in Bilawila. This is a really important story, and as Iran says, it's far from over. It's something we'll continue to look at on Monday Breakfast and we'll follow up on in the coming weeks when there are more developments in the court proceedings. Iran mentioned a few avenues through which listeners can show their support, and we'll be posting these on the Monday Brekkie homepage for anyone who wants to get involved. My name's Chris Breen from the Refugee Action Collective. I've been charged with incitement under the 1958 Crimes Act for helping to organise a safe car convoy protest calling for the release of the refugees at the Mantra Hotel and across Australia because of the risk of COVID-19. Labor MPs Jed Carney and Peter Khalil have called for the release of the refugees in the Mantra Hotel and Jed Carney sent us an audio message supporting the goals of the protest. 26 refugee supporters have been issued fines of $1,652 each, making a total of $43,000 in fines. We'll be challenging the fines and the incitement charge in court and we need your help. We've got a sign-on statement, a petition, a fundraising campaign for our legal defence and a public meeting with Craig Foster, Mosford Manus, Julian Burnside and myself on Monday the 4th of May at 6.30pm. You can go to rack-vic.org or facebook forward slash rackvic for more information. Your solidarity can make a difference for both civil liberties and the urgent campaign to free the refugees. A 3CR supporter. With the coronavirus dominating news and conversation, it can be difficult for other important issues to receive their usual attention. But the autism community is not deterred. April is Autism Awareness Month, and the community is out talking, tweeting, and TikToking messages about what it means to be neurodiverse and how understanding and acceptance are the key to inclusivity. Here to talk to us today is Beth Radulski, a PhD candidate researching neuroactivism at La Trobe University in Melbourne. She's also the Neurodiversity Project Officer at La Trobe and the first openly autistic researcher of autism at the university. So I couldn't think of a better ambassador. Welcome, Beth. Thank you. <laughs> I have read some of your writings and I'm truly excited to have the opportunity to interview today. It's the first time I've come across someone who blends real lived experience with the critical lens of an academic in talking about autism. So we've got so much to talk about, but before we got into the detail of your research and your own experience, I just wanted to get a bit of a feel for Australia as a society 
and how we're sort of tracking us in this quest to understand and embrace neurodiversity and become an inclusive society. I think this is one area uh, of diversity that Australia is quite progressive in. And I think um, from what I've spoken to with autistic uh, activists abroad, um, particularly those who are coming from maybe North America to visit Australia for activist purposes, they're really impressed with Australia's cultural attitude uh, towards autistic people, um, particularly in relation to including autistic people in planning research and collaborating with autistic people in producing research and shaping the goals and outcomes of those projects. So that sort of self-representation is a part of how our country is sort of going forward. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of universities in Australia have a very strong focus on collaborating with autistic people in shaping their academic outputs on autism, which isn't necessarily the case everywhere else. So I think Australia does very well at that. That's really good to hear. What are some of the misconceptions that non-autistic people have about the spectrum and what it means um, to be an autistic person? Those are two very big questions. So the first one, um, I guess, in relation to the spectrum, I think one of the biggest misconceptions is the idea that the spectrum is linear and one end of the spectrum is normal or closer to normal and the other end of the spectrum is further away from normal. So we have this idea that if you're mildly autistic or what we would call um, high functioning, I don't personally like to use those labels, but I know a lot of people uh, understand what they mean. So I'll use those labels. Um, when we speak about the milder or higher functioning end of the spectrum, what we're saying is the person is closer to being non-autistic or what we'd call neurotypical. And if they're further down the spectrum, they're further away from being neurotypical. So some autism activist communities would argue that we shouldn't think of the spectrum as a linear way of measuring how close or far from neurotypical an autistic person is. Rather, we should think of an autistic brain as a different neurotype entirely and not measure that against a normative standard. I see. So can you take me through some of the stereotypes that have developed? Yeah, so I guess a lot of the stereotypes around autism are based on pop culture references. So most of the time, you'll find that people think of autistic people as young white men. Oftentimes, they might imagine those people as savants. Oftentimes, they imagine them as nonverbal. And they tend to be portrayed as burdens in society um, rather than productive and included members in society. And I guess the reality is that autistic people are extremely diverse, just like any other population. And our skills uh, and indeed limitations vary just like anybody else's do. Okay. We sort of get this um, image of the genius as well coming through. Um, what's your take on that? I think it's really, it's a bit of a catch-22, I guess, because oftentimes you'll have a portrayal of an autistic person as being a genius or a savant in such a way that 
the challenges posed by society in terms of seeking inclusion and representation and participation are kind of erased by this idea of this um, I guess, quote unquote, inspiring disabled person who overcomes their challenges by having these wonderful genius strengths. But in reality, a lot of autistic people have different strengths and different limitations. Some of those are personal, some of those are based in societal barriers, and it's difficult to navigate and balance those things in, in ways that allow us to engage with our strengths as well as manage some of the uh, barriers placed in our way by society, I suppose. Okay. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your own journey with autism and how you came out? Sure. Um, so my journey started relatively late in life. Um, and I should clarify, of course, I've been autistic my entire life but I didn't know that I was autistic until I was in my 20s. So for me, um, the process of coming to understand myself as an autistic person started with a lot of reflection and viewing my entire life through this lens of autism, where once I saw a lot of confusion and not understanding why certain things had happened the way they had, viewing it through the lens of being autistic really changed my perspective on my life. So a lot of the challenges that I'd faced in terms of um, social inequality or what I now identify as social inequality, I had thought were maybe personal limitations or things that I wasn't good at or couldn't succeed at, particularly with my education. Uh, now that I recognize that I'm autistic, I'm able to change some aspects of inequality. So I can ask for environmental alterations at my university. I can ask that overhead lights be turned off during staff meetings, for example, and I can participate and be included and quite successful in those environments, making those adjustments. So my process of coming out has been largely defined by advocating for myself and uh, trying to change my surrounding circumstances, I guess, so that I can participate in society and do the work that I do without putting myself at risk. So you've developed a heightened awareness of your own needs. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, we all make choices about what transport we'll take to get to work, for example, depending on whether we like to you know, get a bit sweaty on a bike or whether we like to walk or catch public transport or so forth. So it's, it's finding environments that make us work at our best. Yeah, absolutely. And I think particularly for autistic people, it's really important to have environments that allow us to work at our best it's not, it's not so much a matter of preference necessarily. It can, it can be a disability accessibility issue. So um, we most often think of accessibility or physical accessibility in the context of physical disability. We would think if a person in a wheelchair can't get into a building, um, we need to make sure that there are ramps and elevators and other options. Whereas for autistic people, we might be able to get into the building, but can we actually exist in that building without being in physical discomfort is another question. 
Mm. That makes sense. And this concept of coming out is an expression that's most commonly talked about in the context of gender diversity. So in the mm. context of neurodiversity, is this a, a big thing to come out? And was it a big thing for you? Absolutely. Um, I think so much goes into concealing autism status and and hiding autistic traits that the idea of coming out isn't just about telling people i'm autistic it's it's about my right to exist in public and behave in a, a natural way in a way that's actually comfortable to me so it's it's very multifaceted and there are many layers to coming out um, for some people telling others that they're autistic is I, well, I think for most people, it's a very big step. Um, but the next step after that is, is can I behave in such a way that I'm perhaps visibly identifiable as autistic in front of those people? Can I rock back and forth? Can I flap my fingers? Can I choose not to make eye contact with people? And will they socially and professionally accept me if they understand why I do those things? So coming out is really multifaceted uh, for autistic people oftentimes. Is it a scary concept? It's very scary. And I was, I was quite ambivalent about coming out. Um, I mean, I'm very lucky. My workplace is extremely progressive and my colleagues are very um, socially conscious and celebrate diversity in many different ways. And I still felt more or less terrified at the idea of coming out as autistic. I worried I might get overlooked. I, I worried that people may not want to work with me, that they would stereotype me. They might not think I was as competent. And I actually waited until I had been there for many years and um, had demonstrated my professional competence in such a way that I felt like if I came out and said that I was autistic, people would already know that I was capable of doing my job and I had to just place my faith in them uh, choosing to accept me and thankfully they were wonderfully accepting um, and I actually had very positive coming out experiences. So you felt you had to prove yourself first so that whatever this label meant to other people it wouldn't impinge on their opinion of you as a professional person. Yeah, absolutely. So how was the reaction and did you notice a difference in the way people related to you once you had told them? Yes, I did notice a difference. Um, the reaction was generally one of surprise, I think, because I'm a young woman and I was disclosing this in a higher education context. People were quite surprised because that wasn't their idea of what an autistic person looked or acted like. Um, so the initial disclosure was usually met with, oh, um, I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> so I think people were a bit shocked to begin with, but once I began engaging with them and, and candidly sort of discussing the topic, particularly because my research is on autism um, and is partly based on my lived experience. 
So I was able to have quite open discussions with my colleagues about this and things began making sense for them, I guess. Um, there might have been some people who thought in hindsight, oh, that makes sense why you worked this way um, or why you have this particular skill. You referred to before their surprise and they weren't expecting that because they had made assumptions about you based on the way you looked and the way you worked. That You yourself have said that you had to go to quite an effort to what might be considered neurotypical ways of being in order to protect yourself or fit in um, prior to stating your autistic identity. This is the masking, I'm assuming, that you're researching. Is it that the right um, way of referring to that uh, behaviour? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so masking is uh, the purposeful concealment of autistic traits and characteristics. So um, for me, as a young woman, I masked in many different ways, but some of them were gendered, some of them were based in acting um, feminine in uh, what we would call sort of performing femininity, I guess. So one example I guess I could give is autistic people are sometimes described as having very um, literal verbal tendencies and we tend to, well, some of us tend to have particular tones of voice that are considered to be unusual or very direct and to the point. And I would play up what I saw other women doing with their voices. So I was able to sort of mimic and learn that I needed to moderate my tone of voice and I could speak more femininely, uh, I could be softer, I could do things to make people think that I was just like them. and. I changed basically every aspect of how I presented myself as a person so that they'd read me as a young uh, neurotypical woman. And you hear that uh, because you mentioned uh, gender and coming out uh, previously, uh, you hear that when we speak about gender and how we present as passing as, as straight or passing as um, your assigned birth gender and, and people feeling the need to put on this act and, and behave in a particular way so that they're convincing to others. And I think there are a lot of parallels there for autistic people. That must be exhausting. Absolutely exhausting. Um, it takes a lot of intellectual and emotional and even physical energy. Um, it's everything from changing your voice to the way that you uh, dress. You might feel pressured to wear textures, for example, that are quite physically uncomfortable for you. Um, it's sitting still in public. It's knowing that if at any moment your concentration lapses and you flap your fingers or rock back and forth, people are going to notice. And that's socialized into you from a very young age. When I was a child, I didn't know that it was strange to flap my fingers, but I very quickly learned from my peers in primary school that that wasn't acceptable to them. And that pressure continues to build the more you continue on in life. Did you notice a difference after you came out with your energy levels and sort of a, a sense of well-being because you didn't have to sort of role play somebody that you weren't? Absolutely. Um, I. I mean, when I was in ninth grade, I failed 
most of my classes. I had to repeat the ninth grade. I did. I was not a good high school student. I dropped out of university the first time. Most of that to me came down to exhaustion. I couldn't face getting up and going to those places every day because I felt that it was physically exhausting to be there. I was in discomfort when I was there and I never understood why it was so confusing, why I felt that way and why everybody had this attitude of you're not trying hard enough, you know, get up and go to school and, and everybody else does this. Why do you think you're special? Why do you think you can't do it? And so for me as an adult, understanding actually <laughs> there's a reason why this is so exhausting for me was really eye-opening. And when I went back to university again as, as a mature age student in my late 20s and knew that I was autistic, it suddenly made so much more sense to me why I'd had those difficult experiences. And I was then able to change into the person I am now where, I mean, I can work 40 to 60 hour weeks quite happily because I need that intellectual stimulation and the environment is now better suited to me. The social environment is better suited to me because people understand what I need from them and they tell me what they need from me. So the whole process of getting up and going to work and socializing and, and being in that space is completely different. It's a different physical, intellectual and emotional experience for me now. It sounds like a template for uh, <laughs> successful relationships and workplaces. I think it's interesting because this is one of the things that comes up over and over again when we speak about neurodiversity and, and making neurodiverse accessible workplaces is actually these practices are good for everybody. Mm. <laughs> A lot of them are uh, not only going to benefit uh, neurodiverse populations they're going to benefit everybody in that population well it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today beth thank you so much for joining me and sharing your insights and i wish you all the best uh, for your activism and your research at la trobe thank you <laughs> thank you that was PhD candidate and autism activist beth radalski speaking with me during autism month you can read more about Beth and her work by going to the Latrobe University website at www.latrobe.edu.au and typing Beth Radulski into the search function or following her on Twitter at Beth Radulski. And stay tuned next week to hear part two of the interview where Beth explains the meaning of the term masking, why some activists are striving for autism acceptance rather than awareness and the impact of social inequality on neurodiverse communities. And now I'd like to play a contemporary classical composition called On My Mind by Sydney pianist and composer Melanie Thompson.
Strong, healthy relationships are a major contributor to a content and fulfilling life. Being supported by friends, family and colleagues can make a world of difference during tough times. We caught up with Anastasia Simons from Are You OK? to find out more. Strong interpersonal relationships, so having people that you can rely on, people in your life that you can know you can turn to when times are tough, is a really important protective factor through all of life's challenges. Through those moments where we might feel a little bit overwhelmed, we might feel anxious, or we might indeed be, be facing something that we do need some extra support for. So being able to have people that you can turn to, people that you've invested time, energy, and of course, created those strong connections with is really important. And what research has shown us is that that sense of connection, that sense of belonging, which is so often driven by those interpersonal relationships, can be a protective factor against suicide. So Are You OK? focuses on ensuring that people do feel connected, that there are people in their life that they can turn to, and there are people that they can rely on through all of life's ups and downs. To get some practical advice on how to build stronger relationships and to access a range of information on how to support yourself and those around you through difficult times, why not head to areyouok.org.au. The Community Radio Suicide Prevention Project is produced with the support of the Australian Government Department of Health. Now we're going to hear from Holly Hammond, who is the Managing Librarian at the Commons Library. The Commons Library is an online library and it is filled with resources for organising and campaigning. I asked Holly first up, what is the Commons Library and what's her role there? I'm a librarian, I'm the director of the library, but we also consider ourselves librarians. The Commons is an online library, so it's only on the internet, but it means that all of our materials are freely available for anyone who can connect to the internet. Um, and we collect um, resources on a whole range of different aspects of creating change in the world. So we have manuals and um, articles, podcasts, videos, training materials related to campaign strategy, community organising, digital campaigning, communications and media, uh, working well in groups, lobbying, um, nonviolent direct action, creative activism. Like it's, a, it's a long and comprehensive list. Well, one, one, I've been looking through your resources and initiatives and one I found really interesting was the Reset Reading Group. What's, what's that about? It's a reading group that we're kicking off um, to really make the most of this time where um, it really feels like lots of things have been shaken up by the pandemic. So it's not business as usual. It's a time to kind of think about what do we want for the future. Um, and so we've got a three-month-long program um, with new readings coming out every two weeks that are about thinking about creating a just future. So our themes include indige Indigenous resistance and climate justice, um, uh, disaster capitalism and how we can resist it because times like this is risky for the kinds of changes um, that could happen, um, revitalising democracy, building a new economy um, and centering justice and care. So we're all going to begin together to um, consider these readings either um, in online kind of Zoom groups uh, or uh, via the Facebook discussion or in our households, um, yeah, for three months so that we get to reset together and go forward, create a just future. That's fantastic. Because one of the problems with this coronavirus pandemic is that we have been physically distanced 
and you know that that's that's what we need to do on the public health side of things um mm. but it's really affected people's ability to protest and demonstrate but on your website you've actually got all these digital resources for digital campaigning could you tell us about that as well Sure. So, I mean, I think people are responding pretty creatively to this physical distancing and trying to find different ways to make their voices heard and keep um, bringing pressure on power holders. Um, so we've actually, we've got um, an article called uh, Tactics in a Time of Physical Distancing, um, where we're looking back at Australia's um, past history of protests and finding examples that actually work with physical distancing. So there's lots of things that are offline, actually, like things you can do with posters and banners and um, boycotts and different actions um, that do fit during physical distancing. But of course, um, the digital side is really key as well. So we've got a whole section on digital campaigning, uh, a lot of stuff about using different platforms, um, you know, whether it's um, Instagram, Facebook, WhatsApp, um, etc. Sending really good um, emails that engage people. Um, we're really proud that that we're hosting um, Victoria Tra Victorian Trades Hall's online picket line guide, which is a guide to how they ran a nine-hour-long live stream to engage people in the wage subsidy for all campaign. So you know those kinds of creative responses using digital um, platforms uh, well to engage people and to and to continue campaigning. It is really cool to see how people have reacted um, in, in these new and innovative, innovative ways. And I hope that um, for some people who are maybe more shy of, you know, going to the larger rallies that are, you know, 10,000 people, they, they can get involved in these digital ways. Um, another resource that I found really useful, and I'm going to try to incorporate in my work on, on the radio, is the progressive framing of the coronavirus pandemic, that article. And that collection made me wonder, how do you go about sourcing the content for the website and how much work does that involve? Sure. So um, it's, I think this is kind of the research dimension of our librarian role is that we see a need, that people are talking about an issue when we go out to look and see where we can find those resources. So some of it's good old Googling, um, but some of it's being active in different um, Facebook groups, being kind of aware of who key people are in different areas. So going, you know, checking out their sites to see what they're doing. Um, so with progressive framing, you know, there's some established um, communications consultants and organisations that really focus on that. And they were really quick to put out um, basically adaptations of research they'd already done about how to communicate about health and justice and equality and a bunch of other things and translate that to be relevant to the pandemic so that we don't end up, you know, talking about this issue that everyone is talking about in ways that end up being um, counterproductive to our social justice goals. Yeah, it is a, it is a big uh, danger. Um, so if, if our listeners do have a resource that they've come across, can they send that into the Commons Library for you guys to put up online? Definitely. We really welcome that. And we're really um, appreciative of anyone who's sent stuff to us um, so far. So on our website, we've got a contact form and there's a drop down on there where it's like seeking a resource. So there's, if there's something you're trying to find, you can ask us and we can see if we can help you out, um, but also contributing a resource. So whether it's something your organisation's developed that you think other people could benefit from, we really welcome that. Or maybe you've just spotted something like, hey, this is really cool, I should add it. And then we can go and follow up with the original authors and see if they're okay with that. 
Yeah, there's um, there seems to be everyone's like figuring out new ways to do things, and um, even you know doing this radio show remotely has been a learning process. So it's good when someone can you know just write down a simple user guide, and then it it makes that whole process. Not everyone has to invent the reinvent the wheel. Yeah, um, totally. That that's something that's really key for us is just um making sure you know we can gather the resources and we distribute them back out so that people don't have to do a lot of the hunting themselves but also don't have to develop it from scratch um, and we're also very proud that we have a social change radio directory that includes a whole bunch of community radio shows including our own um, so that um, activists and other people who want to get a message out can find out how to connect with um, those radio shows and also at this time when people are um, you know feeling different kinds of disconnection that they can tune in and connect to their community through radio shows. It's really great. Really important. Um, and so how else can we support the Commons Library? I see that there's a donations page on your website. Oh, donations are always welcome. Yeah, we really appreciate that. We are a very um, like bare bones enterprise, like many uh, social change initiatives are. So, um, yeah, those donations help um, keep employing our part-time librarians and um, help our different projects happen, like the Reset Reading Group. Um, so we yeah, really appreciate that. We've got DGR status, so we can provide um, receipts for people that can claim on tax. Um, also, really encourage people to subscribe to our newsletter. We send a monthly newsletter out um, that's just chock full of um, relevant resources, um, and that lands in the inbox and it's another way to make life easy for you to just subscribe and keep track of things and you can also uh, like us on facebook that was holly hammond from the commons library and i do encourage you to check that out there's so many great resources on there now here's boom by nairi That was how we did it, shooting up a hundred Driving without a permit, fight line any minute And we never give a damn cause we're up in a palace Full of hello heaven, 8, 9, 7, 11 Screaming in the fucking lot, trying to get each other shot Yeah, remember that's how we did Don't forget my name Shadows, wine and tequila Drag each other under the table Hit the bottle, hit the ceiling Never coming off of air Yeah, we kept on believing Garden of Eden I was your Eve, yeah, you were my Adam Some gave it, we got Now we don't even talk I remember that's what we did Don't forget my Off. And they go home in the morning, 
Hospital Melbourne Emergency Appeal is raising funds to support our frontline staff. Funds raised through the appeal are being used to immediately purchase urgently needed equipment. Please donate today. Call 9231 3365 or visit To end the show today, we're going to revisit last week's episode of Done By Law, which airs on 3CR every Tuesday at 6pm. This episode focuses around Victoria Police's enforcement of coronavirus restrictions, particularly around a car rally that occurred outside the Mantra Hotel. So here is last week's episode of Done By Law. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. You're listening to Done By Law. Brought to you by the Federation of Community Legal Centres. Thank you.
Good evening, you're listening to Done by Law this evening with Katia and MJ. Tonight we're speaking about how the COVID-19 restrictions are being policed in Victoria with a particular focus on policing of a car convoy protest that happened recently on Good Friday at the Mantra Hotel. Our guests tonight are Jen Keen mccann and Stephanie Black, volunteers at Melbourne Activist Legal Support and Michael Stanton, spokesperson for Liberty Victoria. We'll first hear some comments from Chris Breen of Refugee Action Collective, the organisers of the protest. Okay, we organised a protest calling for the release of the refugees in the Mantra Hotel and for the 1,400 refugees detained across Australia. Uh, The refugees in the Mantra are particularly vulnerable to COVID-19. Many of them got underlying, they came here via the Medivac legislation and many have underlying health conditions diabetes, um, respiratory problems, Crohn's disease, uh, kidney problems, and absolutely no ability to protect themselves or socially distance within the Mantra Hotel. There's 70 of them in the sealed ward, just one floor of the hotel. It's a huge hotel and they could let them have all the space, but they're in this one area, three to a room, no hand soap. And we called a car uh, convoy protest so everyone was in cars, uh, one or two people per car, and everyone from the same household, uh, completely safe. And I actually didn't get to attend the protest because the police turned up at my house at 12 noon, two hours before the protest, and arrested me for incitement for being one of the organisers of the protest. I spent um, <clears throat> nine hours in a police cell. The police got a um, warrant and uh, took me back to search my house. Uh, They seized all of my computers, my 15-year-old son's computer, uh, my work computer. I'm a school teacher, so I still, you know, my lawyers have made an application to get that back, but I don't have that to prepare for school. My son doesn't have his computer for school. And there's, you know, there was absolutely no need to do all this thing to get that for evidence. Everything we have done is public. You know, I put out a media release in my name. My number is on the Facebook page. That was Chris Breen speaking with Solidarity Breakfast. Now we've got two guests, Jen Keen McCann and Stephanie Black, volunteers at Melbourne Activist Legal Support. So what actually occurred on, it was the 10th of April, so Good Friday. Firstly, the um, protest was meant to go ahead a week earlier, um, but in, in talks with the police, they decided not to go ahead because they were told they'd be fined. The day before, the United Workers' Union had a cavalcade in Sydney and in Melbourne. I think there was also some talk about seeing how that went. The idea with the the car cavalcade was that they would have either one person in a car or the same household in a car and that they would drive a few times around the Mantra and then down High Street. So in that way, they were safe. Under the COVID-19 rules, they were safe because they were were social distancing. Mm And what happened was the police set up a block next to the mantra on, I think, in Hotham Street and basically fined everyone. I mean, they were less social distancing than the people were. And Melbourne Activist Legal Support has released a statement of concern about the protest. So, yeah, so basically the statement of concern after the protest starts with Chris Breen, who was arrested before the cavalcade took place, and he was held in police custody for nine hours and charged with incitement. Of course, you know, under these sort of conditions, under a pandemic conditions, we need to, we do, some of our civil liberties will be curtailed for health reasons, but under international human rights law, 
Such freedoms can only be restricted to the extent strictly required. Mal's also is concerned that a protest where tactics have been adopted to comply with them, government public health restrictions could be suppressed by police. This policing approach squashes protesters' rights to free expression and peaceful association. These rights are recognised in the Victorian Charter and the right to political communication is implied under the Commonwealth Constitution. So basically, Mal sees that the protest was legal. It was thoughtful in the current circumstances and very carefully done. Yeah. And Jen, Chris Breen was charged for inciting illegal activity. And there are concerns that this will have broader implications for the trade union movement and protests going forward. So what are some of the issues that you've identified around civil liberties and, and protest during this action? Well, I think the first thing to say is that we're not sure yet how uh, protest actions are being um, policed. But we haven't had enough of them and we've had very different um, ways of looking at what the restrictions mean in Victoria um, and what restrictions mean in New South Wales, where that's exactly right. Um, a cavalcade that was able to go ahead in Sydney um, resulted in, in like what we would say is, is massive unreasonable fines in Victoria. Um, and part of the issue there um, is that the stay-at-home directions that are lawfully issued under the, I believe it's the Public Health and Wellbeing Act. Those, those directions are fairly vague. I mean, we continually hear in government public service announcements, essentially there are four reasons to be out of your house. But we also know that what constitutes exercise is very much at the discretion of the individual officer. And so, the question for what it means for the trade union movement, what it means for active protests, we don't know, but not knowing is a problem because part of the rule of law and part of um, living under a lawful democratic society is being able to understand the law is transparent and we understand how it's going to be enforced so that we can abide by it. And just as Steph had said before, Mouse actually put out uh, two statements of concern. The first statement of concern came out when um, the police, the Preston, I believe it was the Preston police, um, and then the Darabin police um, had approached Mr. Breen um, the week before and said, if you go through with this protest, we're probably going to fine you. And we put out a statement then, um, just as Steph said, Look, things are going to change in a public health emergency. Um, there are uh, fair and lawful restrictions to our uh, civil liberties in times of emergency. Um, but protesters um, were doing everything that they could to follow the directions, stay, save staying home completely. And initially what we said, or, or um, kind of my interpretation of things, was that the protest itself, it had, if it had gone ahead the first go round, would have been within the directions. Because the directions say that there is, um, I'll have to find it for you later on in our conversation if I can, but the, Directions include volunteer work, 
um, as a part of uh, your worker study that could not be um, taken from home. And so we'd say first, this is a form of volunteer work, or I would say first, this is a form of volunteer work. Um, if not a form of volunteer work, then we have rights protected by the Victorian Charter in Victoria, um, which include freedom of expression and peaceful association. Um, and the uh, Victorian police um, are supposed to both, um, it, public authorities are supposed to create laws and act in a way that is in um, compliance with those uh, rights. Um, and those rights can only be limited in particular circumstances. Um, and so we then say, look, we have these rights. Um, and if we don't just consider the Victorian Charter, we also consider it an implied right to con a political communication because a protest, and particularly a protest in relation to an action by the Department of Home Affairs, I would say is, a, is political communication. Um, again, not a constitutional lawyer, so don't take my, don't consider this legal advice. Um, but there's, a, there's an argument that that's, that's political communication. And even if that wasn't the case, if either of those arguments fail, then there should be compassionate grounds on which the directive should be read down to include this space. Um, and so it all comes down to really not knowing and not being able to rely on um, particular guidance uh, on how um, these directives are being enforced. Mm -hmm. Because I, I guess when these directives were um brought into legislation, it, not, it wasn't necessarily considered about actions outside of people leaving their home right. where they shouldn't be leaving their home. And so this is kind of an interesting space. So what you're suggesting is we haven't really tested yet how these uh, directives sit in line with um, our right to political protest. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yep. I think that the uh, protesters were also saying that they were doing it under care and compassion. Mm -hmm. So they were saying that this is, we are doing this under where, where it's part of our caring. Absolutely. So, you know, I think that that's an important point as well. We're joined now by Michael Stanton, spokesperson for Liberty Victoria. Michael, Liberty Victoria also put out a statement about that protest. What were your main concerns? I guess we have a number of concerns. We have a broader concern that these directions are being enforced in an arbitrary and inconsistent way generally. There's now um, many, many reports of people having difficult interactions with police when it comes to the enforcement of these directions. That concern was uh, heightened when it came to the enforcement in relation to a protest that, by all accounts, attempted to preserve 
social distancing. Whenever there's a limitation to a human right, it has to be proportionate. And at Liberty Victoria, we're concerned that policing, uh, fining a number of the protesters and, and arrest the alleged organiser of the protests were acting in a disproportionate way in limiting the right to protest effectively of those people. In Victoria, Victoria Police uh, members are public authorities for the purposes of the Charter of Human Rights and Responsibilities Act. That means they have an obligation to act compatibly with human rights as protected by the Charter, and that includes the human rights of freedom of expression, uh, peaceful assembly, freedom of association. In addition, uh, at Liberty Victoria, uh, our view uh, is that it's uh, at least arguable that the stay-at-home directions themselves, as issued by the Deputy Chief Health Officer, uh, have to be interpreted consistently with those human rights as protected by the Charter, pursuant to Section 32, subsection 1 of the Charter, which means so far as it's possible to do so consistently with their purpose, they need to be interpreted in a manner consistent with those fundamental human rights. What would you say to the view that, look, it's not complicated, there are only these reasons why you're allowed to leave home, a protest is not one of those reasons? Well, that's probably going to be a matter that will end up being tested um, by the courts and uh, and because it is before the courts uh, we need to be careful with uh, what we say uh, but uh, it is at least arguable in our view that the actions of the protesters could fall within those uh, exceptions uh, within the stay-at-home directions uh, possibly in uh, one of two uh, ways uh, either that um, the protesters were um, taking action on care and compassionate grounds which is an exception to the uh, stay-at-home directions or requirements, uh, or alternatively, that the protesters were engaged in a form of uh, voluntary work for a charitable purpose. Now, either of those um, arguments um, will um, need to be tested, but um, it is uh, strongly arguable in our view that the stay-at-home directions in being interpreted consistently with human rights under the Charter should lead to a fairly broad uh, interpretation of those uh, limitations and those directions, uh, which would then uh, arguably encompass the, the conduct of the protesters. What about protests that might not fall under the reasons that you just mentioned? Yeah, well, I guess each case will turn on, on its facts. Uh, it, what makes this particular example of the Good Friday protest interesting, particularly interesting, is that the protesters attempted to protest in a proportionate way that respected social distancing. So if there's going to be a limitation on human rights, and it's accepted at Liberty Victoria that in these extraordinary times, there needs to be some limitation to human rights. Uh, those limitations should only be um, done, what are strictly necessary um, and um, are proportionate. Um, so by protesting in a in a manner that respected social distancing, uh, arguably that uh, resulted in any attempt to prevent that from occurring from being a disproportionate limitation to the human rights of those protesters. Um, there's also the implied freedom of political communication under the uh, constitution, and that rule uh, would also turn on whether any limitation to that fundamental. Uh, right is uh, proportionate. Um, so each case will turn on its facts, but certainly at Liberty Victoria, we're not um, suggesting that people should be out there in the streets within 
1.5 metres of each other um, rallying and protesting. But uh, if they can protest in a manner that does respect social distancing, that does uh, minimise any risk of uh, contracting COVID-19, then um, they should be able to do so. At the end of Liberty Victoria's media release, there was a call for a response from the Victorian government. What do you expect from them at this point? Well, I suppose what we're really asking for is clarity, uh, because uh, at the moment, one of the real problems with uh, the approach of um, police to these stay-at-home directions is that there's inconsistency. And it shouldn't be the case that people have to guess whether or not their conduct is um, potentially unlawful, uh, they need to have uh, absolute clarity about that. So it would really um, clear things up if the government um, announced uh, whether or not it, it was it held the view that all um, social, even socially distant pro- protesting um, is effectively prohibited under the current stay-at-home directions. Uh, whether or not that um, is lawful is something that can be tested um, through the courts if necessary. Uh, but it would be good to know, and I think it would assist those enforcing the law as well, uh, to know what, what the position of government is uh, when, it, when it comes to these restrictions. There is a real danger, uh, and I think Deputy Commissioner Patton's um, been reported as having said that an inconsistent application of these stay-at-home directions um, is leading to an erosion of public confidence in Victoria Place, and no one wants that. Uh, people... Uh, want clarity when it comes to their rights. Uh, they want to know whether or not conduct they're engaging in is lawful or whether they, they might receive a very, very significant fine. Um, and um, it shouldn't really be a matter uh, where one would hope lawyers have to get involved and things have to be litigated at, uh, through the courts. It would be much better if as part of the review process in relation to all these fines that have been announced uh, Victoria Police take a uh, very um, careful and considered approach in a way that respects their obligations as public authorities under the Charter of Human Rights. That was the 3CR show Done By Law talking about the car rally that uh, occurred in support of the refugees kept at the Mantra Hotel. You can catch Done By Law on 3CR at 6pm every Tuesday. That's all from us for this week. Thank you for tuning in to Monday Breakfast and we look forward to speaking to you again next week. Thank you to all our guests for coming on the show and thank you to Dunby Law for letting us play that segment. And we're going to leave you with Dr. Unipingu singing Amazing Grace.
Yeah. Uh-huh.